This is the second of a two-part program recorded live in Los Angeles. On this episode, you'll hear from three film teams featured on the Oscars documentary shortlist. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. Last week, our podcast partnered with the entertainment newsletter The Ankler for a live event at the Culver Theater. On this episode, we'll talk about Still, a Michael J. Fox movie, and Bobby Wine, the People's President. But we start with the film Going to Mars, the Nikki Giovanni Project. It profiles the poet who is a key figure in the 1960s black arts movement and has been a vibrant voice ever since. I don't remember a lot of things. But a lot of things that I don't remember, I don't choose to remember. Childhood remembrances are always a drag if you're black. I remember what's important, and I make up the rest. That's what storytelling's all about. The directors are Joe Brewster and Michelle Stevenson. They have extensive filmmaking careers, both as individuals and as collaborators. Among their films is American Promise, a longitudinal study of their son and his friend experiencing New York's educational system. This year, they also directed the short Black Girls Play. On Going to Mars, they teamed with producer Tommy Oliver, who joined them for this conversation. So, Joe and Michelle, what did Nikki Giovanni mean to you? Everything. You know, she's unapologetic. And she has an agency which you don't often see in black celebrities. And so for us, it was motivation, not only to make the film, but for our careers. Uh, I remember her when I was growing up in Los Angeles, hearing that poem, you don't see it. You should watch the film, it's an amazing film. Uh, Quoting the back IP and realizing my folks have done some shit in this world, and uh, I should be proud of that. For me, you know, I, I first encountered her work when I was coming of age in college. And so uh, it was a time of discovery. I was grasping for a sense of self, and um, she influenced me along with an, a whole sort of cohort of black women, writers, poets, activists. And so she was seminal in my own understanding of who I was and my purpose in life. So it's been a really, a true gift to be able to spend seven years with her in this process. And so Tommy, coming aboard this project as a producer, what is it about Joe and Michelle's work and ability to bring this story to life that attracted you? It was a joy working with these two. And being able to understand their their love of craft and how meaningful somebody like Nikki was to them, but to the community at large. And their incredibly specific, beautiful, bold take on somebody that is incredibly specific and bold and so nuanced. It was just a a fun thing to to be around in any capacity. I, I could have been carrying water and I would have been happy to have been around just to experience the such pure love and seeing that love born out on screen in the way that it was. So 
Joe Michelle, we see in the film that Nikki has certain boundaries. There's things that she says she doesn't remember. There's things that she plain doesn't want to talk about. So how did you navigate that to bring forth the story you wanted to tell and and work around the things that she didn't want to go to? We've never been involved in a film where there weren't boundaries. And it's our job to make a decision whether we wanted to overcome those boundaries or look for another way to tell the story. And so that's what we mean by, by craft. So there is nothing that she said and did in terms of setting limits that was surprising. Sometimes they don't set the limits and they show up three hours late for the shoot. <laughs> uh, but in her case, there were clear boundaries and we found ways to supersede them. Yeah, I have to say it was actually a gift and I was grateful for such clarity. It's part of also what I respected as a filmmaker because then it challenged me to change those, figure out with those boundaries, how do we turn boundaries into opportunities? And they became really creative opportunities where we took things to a whole other level and looked at her poetry. In some ways, she sort of forced us to look at her poetry as part of the storytelling and her own evolution as a person. So in some cases, she didn't have to say anything. Everything was in her poetry. All the vulnerability, her experiences as a child. And in some ways, it really channeled us to use a poetic device in a cinematic way that I feel hits on so many levels. So I'm actually grateful for her, her boundary setting, and it's an example for me <laughs> in terms of how I live my life, and even as an artist as well and storyteller. Tommy, can you reflect on the visual eclecticism in this film? Uh, you know, there's archival footage, and even when interviews are shot with Nikki, there's a very deliberate visual approach, and then there's space footage. And I mean, you can just feel like an editor and the whole film team uh, having a lot of fun, uh, like you, you said before. But, you know, can you talk about the freedom that was at play in this film? I can, but I think they can do it better. And I think that it's, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'd love to hear it from the two of you because for, for me, it was, again, watching them see these things come to light was incredible. And my job was to just support and maybe push a little bit more when they forgot what they said they wanted to do. <laughs> but it was really what they wanted to do. And so I don't want to speak for them. So when we envisioned this film seven years ago, we're saying, we said, we're going to make I'm Not Your Negro meets Kurt Cobain montage of Hick. And, and what I mean by that is that there are multiple layers of storytelling, multiple parallel narratives, and we wanted them to talk to each other. So when you say that these things are happening, there's also a communication between the archival, the performances. What else do we have in this film, Michelle? Well, there's archive performances, the poetry, and the, the interesting about the archive is there's archive that people have never seen before. There's archive of home, family, black life from across the country. And then there's archive that is iconic, 
that we deliberately and very intentionally use, but in a totally different way. It forces us to see those moments in different ways. An example of that is the Birmingham bombing. The way we land on that, we actually land on that from space <laughs> to the actual uh, removal of the bodies of these young women, these young girls out of the church. And it's a whole other sort of uh, level of understanding on an emotional place that we take this journey. Um, the one thing I want to say about sort of the editing is that we were very intentional about bringing our own sort of a cultural sensibility. Sometimes it's like jazz the, the cutting. Sometimes there's call and response where the conversation between James Baldwin and Nikki Giovanni is responding to the archive of poetry that you see before the scene. And all of that is in play in polyrhythmic sort of editing spaces where for me it felt like being at home, being from the Caribbean. Joe, you can talk about your church experience, but this is sort of what was informing um, how we were telling the story. See what I mean? <laughs> You've been bringing this film to audiences for months now, and I'm I'm very curious how different audiences receive the film. There, you know, is a audience of a generation who grew up with Nikki Giovanni, and then there's a brand new audience, and there's some people may vaguely have heard of her, and now are getting an education. So, what's that been like? Well, I would say. Berlin is one experience, uh, Denmark is another, but they all are the same. Some audiences emote more, some less, but when we... So those Danish audiences are really emoting, yeah, right? I, I know there are a few Danes in the, in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the reality is the cutting style causes a reflection on what's being said that really resonates across audiences. Through the specific comes the universal. So this is specific, but this is our culture, and it's resonated on most of the places. Yes, people who have a Black Atlantic cultural experience, all Americans do, but Black Americans a little bit more, see the jazz earlier. But the reality is we are trying to make a film where we use editing style, complexity, tone, to make really people think about their own personal experience. Michelle, any reflections of the way audiences have received the film? What's well, been your favorite screening? I, I mean, I've enjoyed all of the screenings. And I have to say that the love that we've received from wherever we've been has been quite overwhelming. I mean, I don't, we, you know, you put a film out there knowing that it's moving you and then you share it not knowing what the reaction is going to be like. And I'm just grateful with how it's resonating. And as Joe said, it's really resonating across audiences. Because, again, I think there's part of the story, everyone can come in and understand it or feel it with their own baggage. Because that's, I mean, that's what art is, right? When you do a piece of work and other people come and see it, they come and react to it and bring what they have in it. And if the piece is strong, it means that I will be moved. It may be a different meaning than the person next to me, but because there's sort of this aspect of art that is even, not even verbal, it's all, it's, there's this an emotional aspect to it that I think resonates. And so I feel like 
what I feel is that there are elements of that in this film that touch everyone. So the last question, what does Nikki think of the film? So I, uh, I was having tea with Nikki in London, remember? And I asked her this very question, and she loves the film. And you're never going to guess what she compared the film to. I'm not going to tell you why. You're going to have to watch it and figure out for yourself. But you know what she said? The Godfather. <laughs> that was her comparison. <laughs> Might have to watch it a couple times. <laughs> well, tell your friends it's streaming on Max uh, starting on January 8th. And while you're at it, check out Black Girls Play also. Big thanks to Joe Brewster, Michelle Stevenson, and Tommy Oliver. Thank you. Thank you. Next up is Still, a Michael J. Fox movie about the actor who rose to fame in the 1980s in TV and film roles such as Family Ties and Back to the Future. Around the age of 30, Fox began to show signs of Parkinson's disease, a condition that he concealed for many years before going public in 1998. Since then, he's used his prominence and humor to take away social stigma from the illness. The film covers his highs and lows. The director, Davis Guggenheim, has a prolific career, including An Inconvenient Truth, Waiting for Superman, and He Named Me Malala. For our conversation, he was joined by his Irish editor, Michael Hart, whose credits range from Three Identical Strangers to Don't Fuck With Cats. For this project, Hart took inspiration from the fiction film starring Michael J. Fox. He used that footage to illustrate the actor's memories. Hart explained to me and Davis why this project had special meaning for him. Well, look, I, I I don't know if many of you have seen it, but, you know, in a film that's about being true to yourself and honesty, I think I'll be true and I'll be honest and say I was obsessed with Michael J. Fox when I was young. <laughs> I mean, I, I used to live in a small town in, in Ireland and, and I had a small video shop and I would go in every day and I would rent a VHS back in the day and it would be with Michael J. Fox in it. And What's I would VHS? VHS, uh, videotape, and, uh, and I would... I would watch movies just because he was in it you know that was the draw for me I was a bit like him I didn't have that many friends in school but I, I got obsessed with Michael J Fox and his movies and particularly Back to the Future I got hooked on that one and, and I still am to this day I mean Davis loves me telling the story so I'll tell it but I have a picture with Michael J Fox in a DeLorean at Comic Con me and him Michael J Fox doesn't know any of this because I wanted to get the job and didn't want to come across as a weirdo <laughs> And 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 one day Stalker. I woke, yeah and, and and there's a point to this story but Stalker by documentary <laughs> yeah it was a, a, a long road to get an autograph from Michael J Fox but um, I woke up one morning and there was a there was a box outside my house from eBay and, and I didn't know what it was and I opened it and I looked and it was a hoverboard from Back to the Future too I thought well who sent me this and then it it clicked that I bought it online one night when I was drunk and I completely forgot. <laughs> So, so this is who you're dealing with. So I, I kind of became so obsessed with him as the reason I became an editor. This isn't a joke. This is true. And, and I got a job on Three Identical Strangers. And um, we cut that documentary like a Michael J. Fox movie. And then Davis Guggenheim showed up and decided he was making a documentary about Michael J. Fox. And somebody came along and said, well, look, if you need an editor, there's a guy. He's good at editing, but he's really good at Michael J. Fox stuff. <laughs> so... 
so that's how I got the job. But Davis isn't a super fan, sadly. So he's a good director, though. <laughs> so what was your entryway into the project, Davis? So for me, I have to say it was maybe the lowest moment of my life, other than my father passing away. It was during COVID. This is about three or four years ago. And I remember being depressed. And looking back now, I can see that I was depressed, but I didn't know what depression was. I'm a pretty upbeat person. But I remember being sitting in the dark on the couch and watching my family having a great time laughing and going, why can't I even go to that table and find joy with the people I love? And that's just, that's just the state I was in when I read an interview with Michael. And I, and I was just reading the New York Times, and, and, and he told this story about this fall he had. He was late for a Spike Lee movie. He just recovered from a surgery and this terrible fall, and he fell so badly he broke his shoulder and he couldn't reach the phone to call an ambulance. And he was more worried about actually calling Spike Lee and saying he wasn't going to make it. <laughs> but his writing was, of course, witty, because he's a very witty guy, but it was also very poignant and had some deep and profound things for me. And I think that's what you wish for as a filmmaker, as a film that calls you in some way. Lauren talks about it a bit. That you just, like, you just want a film to grab you and help you. And in the telling of it, maybe you get, as a human being, become a little bit further along in your, in your journey. So this film, you've got a wonderful storyteller at the center of it. You've got this wealth of material to draw from. What was the hard part about making this film? Well, you didn't mention a stalker from Ireland. <laughs> yeah, it, was, it, was, it was the easiest job I ever had was looking through Michael J. Fox material for six months, I think it was. I, I got paid to do it. But the, 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 the truth is I, I kind of knew the material inside out before we started the project. He asked me the question. I know, but this is, you know. <laughs> Sorry, Gary. What was the hardest part? Yeah. Seriously. What, what, it the really, hardest part of this say, is the hardest part, I is, think. Well... We did, actually, the truth is, is that, you know, it's sometimes when you're um, complaining to friends when you're making a movie, you're saying, well, God, it's awful. I'm, I'm having this argument with this person, and I just, I, I'm having such a terrible day at work. And the truth is, is that I look back, and Michael Hart and I had battles every day. And out of those battles came something pretty wonderful. And the battle was, among many things, it was never mean or vitriolic, but... I, when I turn my head, you make a face. <laughs> anyway, the problem with films, and, and Tommy, you know this well, is that when you're telling a story and there's a tremendous amount of retrospective and people lean on, on recreations. And it's this sort of wonderful opportunity that documentaries have, but it's also this thing that we kind of overdo and, and sometimes... It's hard to get right. Hard, it's really hard. I've done it wrong. And so but when we were talking about some of these, like, scenes, a good example is when Michael J. Fox gets the scene for Back to the Future. And my idea was to do a recreation. And I, I was in L.A. at the time, and I would work with a storyboardist, and I'd storyboard that scene, and I would send them to Michael, who was in London. And then I'd go home and go to bed, and I'd wake up, and I'd get a quick time on WeTransfer. And you tell this part of the story. 
Well, like, yeah, as David said, our battle it was a it was a very very healthy battle, and one I cherish looking back at the time. It's always difficult, but I was pushing against the recreations because I was like, you cannot recreate Michael J. Fox. It's just not going to happen. Also, I have experience of films. I've, I've worked in some where where it works, and some it doesn't. Three Identical Strangers has a, has a, you know it served a very good purpose, and sometimes you do it and it's not serving any purpose, but you're just covering stuff because you don't have the material to do it. And people go there and it's not creative enough. And I think you have to push it creatively. And in fairness to Davis, he said, look, we'll do this, but we need to go somewhere else with it. And, and, and I think if, when you shoot a lot of that material, what happens is you end up looking at the back of someone's head. You can never show their face. And I find that becomes very distancing. Like, and Because you just want to connect with someone's eyes. It's the, it's the number one way you connect with someone, I think, anyway. And you definitely can't show his face because it's Michael J. Fox. He's one of the most recognizable only people in the Michael world. There's only one Michael J. Fox, trust me, okay? And so we had created the scene where he was getting the script for Back to the Future, but it was a lot of backs of heads and stuff. And then, and then one evening, maybe with a couple of too many coffees, I thought, you know what, actually, I know a scene from... In my memory, I'd remembered it because, I, like I said, I knew all the material. There was, re- there was kind of method to the madness. And, and I knew there was a scene where he was in Bright Lights, Big City, and he was flicking through a couple of pages. And I thought, well, what if we put that in instead of the recreation or mix it? And I put it there with a piece from his audiobook. We use his audiobook as a kind of spine to the documentary and the story of the past. So I put that with the picture of him, and it recontextualizes that shot. And it was kind of good. I was like, oh, this is kind of interesting. Uh, maybe I'm getting carried away because I like, like Michael J. Fox and Davis might fire me if this doesn't work. But then I added the, the piece of music from Back to the Future where it goes, it's a kind of famous motif that maybe, maybe I'm the only person in the building that knows it. But, but, but I can hear people in the, in the theater when that scene happens and they kind of go, oh, it's Back to the Future. And, and so I created a wee transfer quick time, sent it to Davis and said, well, what do you think? Like, and Davis was like, this, this might be, you may have cracked the code or we have cracked the code. And then we went on this mad journey of creating these scenes together where he would create these scripted scenes and I would do stuff with archive and we'd go back and forth and it became kind of magic. Like, but the main thing was where you could see his face. You could connect to Michael J. Fox and you see him all the time. And that was the key for me was just to, to see his eyes, you know, and it wasn't an actor, it was him. So, yeah. Davis, when you're interviewing Michael J. Fox, now he's written his memoir, he's got, you've got the audio book, but you need to bring something else out from him in the interview. What was that process like? Well, this is how dumb I am. I told this to Michael, I was like, uh, no interviews in this film at all. Remember that? And we went like three or four months editing and doing it. And then I was, and, and I was shooting something else and this cameraman, uh, the great Claire Popkin who did Free Solo, he set up this shot that, and, which I'd never seen before. I, I'm like, I'm old, I've done everything. And it's like, no, there's a shot where you put the camera right here. So Michael is you and I'm me. And the lens is right here. And unlike Errol Morris, where you do the Interotron, some of you know, where you're looking through a mirror and it's very distancing and you can't look at someone in the eye. You can be right here. And I go, you can do that? And I go, let me just go once and just interview Michael J. Fox once. So we went to his office, it's where... It, it's the one interview in the whole movie. Uh, and, I, you know, and he had, he's obviously had Parkinson's and it was unclear whether he could be himself. And clearly in those days he had good moments and bad moments. And we just sort of like set up the camera and just waited all day until he was ready. And then he sits down and it was incredible. 
And uh, the conversations that we had, I think, made the movie. He, he was just so vulnerable and open. And I know, you know, Tom, you're such a champion of documentaries. I mean, for those of you who don't appreciate, you know, <laughs> you've carried all of us for so long and all your work um, in, in docs and, and championing us. And it's just so wonderful. And the thing to me is like, I'm watching a documentary. Is this person opening and telling me everything? And my wife and I will watch a documentary and be like, you know, I didn't really like that answer. And you know, that, that sounds like an answer a publicist would write for a character or they're hedging or I can see in their eyes or not, they don't believe what they're going to say. And for me anyway, I felt like Michael was just himself and had nothing to hide. In fact, there was this moment when we showed him the film and it's always this nerve wracking thing. And we always show the subject, the film and, and the lights come up and I said, what do you think? He goes, you know that scene where I'm on family ties and I'm acting like a total asshole? I'm like, oh no, this is the moment where he, you know, tells me that he's going to ask me to cut something from the movie. I had final cut, but I was like, you know, how do you say no? And he said, how do you find that? That's awesome. <laughs> and that's unusual. It's very unusual for a character, for a person, for a character to say, I'm here, this is me. I'm a flawed human. And that's the true element of my life that must be in this movie. And, and that was him. And that's, and that's what you see in the interviews. So, Davis, you described beginning this project at a personal low moment for you. What was, what did the making of the film do for that? Michael wrote in his book, he wrote this line, Parkinson's is a gift that keeps on taking. And I remember circling it, starring it in the book and sending it to you. And we never put it in the movie. Somehow, maybe it was too much to say it so directly. But to me, that was like sort of a, an amazing, first of all, it was like, God, that's a clever turn of phrase. But now I realize that after being with him and countless, he's broken both wrists, both shoulders, bones in his face, pins in his face, pins in his hands, countless emergency rooms. I, real, I see how Parkinson's has taken from him. But what I realize is that he, it has given him this gift, this gift that sometimes our gratitude comes when we're most fragile that we appreciate life when it is most ephemeral. And that's what I take away from it. I don't have Parkinson's, thank God. I do feel my fragility getting older, and I see my kids getting older, <laughs> me becoming less and less relevant. But I just see his optimism that is truly earned, not this kind of you know, superficial thing that you might see somewhere else. He is, he is truly wise. Uh, and so I'm, you know, I'm lifted by him, truly. Well, it's such a pleasurable film. It's on Apple TV+. Plus. Thank you to director Davis Guggenheim and Michael J. Fox, super fan, Michael Hart. <laughs> the final film in this roundup is Bobby Wine, the People's President, about a popular musician who ran for parliament in Uganda defying the authoritarian regime that's held power for over three decades. Ugandan filmmaker Moses Boyo followed Bobby Wine's career over several tumultuous years that included the singer being arrested and brutalized as a political prisoner. It was highly dangerous work. During filming in 2020, Moses was shot in the face with a rubber bullet. In our conversation, Moses is joined by Barbie Chagulani, the wife of Bobby Wine, who's central to this film. Barbie is an author and founder of the NGO Caring Hearts Uganda, 
dedicated to empowering girls. She and Bobby continue to live in Uganda, but she was able to join us in Los Angeles. So, Moses, when you started filming this project years ago, what were you expecting? I mean, could you have possibly anticipated that it was going to turn into the multi-year journey that it, that it became? Wow. When we started this project with uh, Christopher and, and I and, you know, following Bobby and Bobby, we, at first, you know, we thought we are making a film about this superstar, you know, superstar musician turned politician. And, you know, we had no idea where it was going to go. But very quickly we knew, I mean, uh, him as a character is just a charismatic guy and very interesting. And he had got it into parliament in Uganda and he was asking all the youth to get involved. There was really something there. And, and I myself, I had never voted at that point. And I was, you know, considering to vote after hearing him. And yeah, but over the years, six years down the road, it was a totally different story. He had run for presidency, won an election, and stakes high and, you know, lives changed, including my own. And, you know, people close to, to him have disappeared. And yeah. So Barbie, what did it mean to have Moses come in and be filming with you? And how did it change for you? Maybe at the beginning of this project, it seemed like, well, Moses is going to film until the election is over, but then it keeps going. So we met Christopher at his daughter's wedding in Malta. He invited my husband. The co-director of the, the co-director. film. He invited Bobby to sing at the daughter's wedding because he's a musician. That's what he does for a living. So we had just come from an intense uh, election. He was voted MP. So he carried me along just for a whole holiday. And Christopher said he had something interesting. He said, we have a plan. I don't know if you'll accept, if we could just have cameras follow you around and your wife. He made it very simple. It sounded like it was just like compiling our lives. And then maybe in future when our children are 50, they'll just look at us and themselves. And yeah, it's for the memories. And we said, why not? It's good. Let's do it. So we had journalists who were not from our country filming. That was like some kind of indicator that it wasn't really small. Then along the way, Moses came in. Now, Moses was different. Moses gelled in so well that we forgot that we had a cameraman in our home. For all those years, we didn't notice how much he was collecting. In the end, he had over 4,000 hours of footage. And looking at this film, just shows us how much access these people had. We did not know it would come out this way and we were not threatened by the camera because we had been in the limelight at a certain level. But seeing it today just scares me a lot because a camera can actually keep so much of you. <laughs> yeah. So there is a lot of danger and conflict around the attention Bobby's received that continues to this day. As I mentioned in my introduction, you know, Moses, you took a rubber bullet in the face in the, in the making of this. How did you face the danger in this? So in the beginning, the violence was mainly meted upon the politicians, upon Bobby Wine, his family, and, and those close to him. You know, people being kidnapped and disappearing and, and you know, but 
at towards the election, almost midway the journey, this violence started being meted upon journalists and civil society as well. The military started targeting journalists. Right, Uh, military, police, the whole government. Apparatus. Apparatus, yeah. And it was indiscriminate, you know, but I had noticed I had been identified because as you, you'll see in the film, those two other cinematographers, both Caucasian guys, Michele Sibiloni and Sam Benstead, they were on the project for a few months and, and they had to flee for the, their own safety. But more and more I knew this was a task to accomplish, you know, regardless of the violence, regardless of, you know, the arrests and interrogation and being locked up in jail and all that. I knew this was a task to accomplish and... As we all know, documentary filmmakers, you know, we make sacrifices to make these films. And not all of us get shot in the face, though. That's right. <laughs> exactly. That's right. But I feel like I had to finish this task. And yes, dedication to the craft, but also this was a moment in history of, of our country that a whole generation was standing up to a 37 year long dictatorship. And being right there amidst this chaos was a blessing. You know, and more and more, that's how I see it. And that's how I've seen it. Um, Because, you know, I would have said, no, I'm done. But, you know, I was even more encouraged to carry the task forward. And I've not seen people as brave and kind and vulnerable as Bobby and Bobby. They are just, and I'm not saying this because she's here. No, no, no. They, They are just the most incredible people and just committed to democracy and change and the betterment of others, you know, selfless. And I thought we have to highlight this story of the country and, and the people. I think what Moses is not saying about himself is that our country has, the young people below the age of 30 are over 85% of the population. So 85% of the population are 30 years and below. So they have a leader in Bobby, and he was calling out all the youth with their talent to contribute to the betterment of our country. So I am sure Moses along the way felt like it was his duty to use that camera to play that part. So he was recruited. And the Moses that came in to just film was not the same Moses that walked out of our home. No, he was very, very different. He is very different. Yeah. I wish I was filming him instead. <laughs> <laughs> so, Barbie, talk about right now in Uganda and what are the stakes for you and Bobby right now and what does it mean to have this film out in the world? The first question, the camera stopped rolling, but the torture, the disappearances, the murders, the imprisonment without charge still goes on. Just yesterday, we had a renowned pastor almost murdered. His driver was shot at 13 times. Then he was waylaid on his way home and his driver shot at and he was not touched. He is a political pastor. He has a big following. So that happens, is still happening. We are losing lives and we are close to another election. We have young people being arrested and raped. Men are being raped in the cells. Young boys 
intentionally. The ladies are being gripped both ways. And then they are released on the days when they are really sick. And the police gives the reports just the way they are. These are rape cases. We have all the reports, but we don't have a court to go to because the courts are their courts. We have leaders being coerced to join the NRM and leave the people. We have MPs being arrested and charged for cases which are fabricated and kept for over how long? Two years? For over two years, they are in military confinement. They are not in parliament and nobody is saying anything. The courts are very slow. Some we do not know where they are. Some, today yeah, some people are, are still missing. We are demanding for their release. But where, where are we today? We are still demanding that justice comes to everybody, regardless of whether they support us or not, because we need sanity in our country. Where do I see this film take us? This film has already done the bigger portion of its duty. The world has seen Uganda for what it is, the good, the bad, the ugly, unfiltered, uncensored. And we're grateful to Nat Geo for giving us that platform. And we're grateful for everybody that has come out to watch it. And we are very grateful for everyone that has told their friends and families to go and watch the film. We just need the world to know what is happening back home because our government has been in control of what comes out of our country. The media, they censor it, they clean it, and then they have people in Washington clearing their image everywhere. But this film has no control over it. Nobody has control over it, and at least it's doing its part. So we are grateful so far. Very grateful. Bobby, for my last question, you have all this experience of standing up to an authoritarian government. Uh, here in our country, we have an election later this year and wonder what kind of future we may be facing. I wonder what you tell young people about standing up to power that seems sometimes unstoppable. Okay. I do not have experience in facing authoritarian leaders. Nobody's experienced in that. You are just cornered in a place between a rock and a hard place and you must survive. That's what, what is happening to us. We found ourselves there. We lived a decent life. My husband earned money from singing. It's just one day when he woke up and said, if it's not me, then who is coming for this man? I had nothing to do. I was recruited just like Moses. I had to play my part, and that's to support him, and also to encourage the wives of those leaders to support their husbands, because that's the biggest part they could play. Now, I don't know about your election. Stay out of it. <laughs> <laughs> what I know, though, is that they call the young people out to vote. I see that a lot. They say, young people, this is your country, come out and vote. Well, our people would love to vote. The young people registered in huge numbers. The biggest voters in our country are young people. They, they wake up at 4 a.m. and line up in the rain, in the sun, just to 
replace that ballot. But the election is rigged. The military packs at the electing polls. They intimidate everybody. They tear gas the voters. They even ride through the villages in the middle of the night looking at the registration, voters' registration and picking out all the voters and keeping them in prison for the day so they don't vote. That's the difference between us and you people. But I believe that our young people really want the change that they deserve. And I would request all the young people to play their part. If you call the young people to go out and vote, they should go and vote because they are very lucky to have the democracy that they have today. We want to vote, but we are not allowed to vote. Yeah, that's the difference. So just in addition, this film essentially just tells you a little bit about what you could have if you don't take care of your democracy. Democracy is a very fragile system. And, you know, there's a semblance of peace that exists in America. And it's very easy to, you know, let it to the politicians, you know. And, and I'm sure this has created a lot of apolitical people in this country. And I think that's a dangerous thing because as you see this film, what you see in there, that's what you get if you don't participate in, in your election. We've had Museveni for 37 years. Yes, every five years he organizes elections, but they're not really elections. It's just a rubber stamp, you know, to continue another five term and then please the West, you know, who give him, America gives him $1 billion. You know, this country gives Uganda $1 billion every year. And some of this goes to the military. Some of this goes to perpetrate these uh, gruesome acts that are happening on Ugandans. You know, and, and this is not the case for just Uganda. This is a case for many countries where today we see a rise in totalitarianism. You know, so the good-meaning world and those who love democracy should stand up. You know, so we hope that you all can share this film with, you know, your friends and people you care about for them to understand a little bit of what's happening, you know, outside of this country. Yeah, thank you. I want to thank the filmmakers in this episode from Bobby Wine, the people's president, still a Michael J. Fox movie, and going to Mars, the Nikki Giovanni project. See our show notes for more information about these films. Thanks to the team at The Ankler, especially Janice Min and London Sanders, for inviting Pure Nonfiction to partner on this event. Thanks to our podcast team, series producer Hannah Norton-Swan in Helsinki and marketing manager Bella Racklin in Los Angeles. The music is composed by Andre Williams and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers, finishing this episode in Montclair, New Jersey. You can follow us on Instagram at Pure Nonfiction and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. <laughs>